This is The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. David is the senior pastor of Calvary Chapel Casa Grande in Casa Grande, Arizona. The fruit of our lives led to sin, that fruit of unholiness. We were attached to the law, and the wages of that sin was death. The fruit was unholiness, but the wages of sin was death. But now, praise the Lord, we've come to that point of faith and to put our trust in Christ, in that completed work of Christ. And we're now under grace, and the the fruit of our lives now has changed. Instead of being unholiness, now the fruit of our lives has changed to holiness. Pastor David will be teaching us all about living in the power of God's grace. For us to be able to live and work in God's grace is a process of sanctification. We must renew our mind and believe in faith that we're no longer bound by sin and no longer in bondage to it. We must focus on the victory that has already been gained through the sacrifice of Christ. We can do nothing of our own works to gain grace. We must simply receive it in faith and walk it out in obedience by the power of the Spirit. Now here's Pastor David in the book of Romans, chapter 6, verse 22, with part one of our message entitled, Living in Graceland. It was back in 1939. The Dr. Thomas Moore and his wife Ruth had received land through a family estate, and on that land they decided that they were going to build an American colonial-style home. Well, they built the home, and it was located on 13.8 acres, about 12 miles south of downtown Memphis, Tennessee, and about, uh, about four miles north of the border of the state of Mississippi. Well, the house itself was 17,552 square feet. Pretty big house. It had eight bedrooms, eight bathrooms. A beautiful, beautiful home. The home, as it was in the family and on the family uh, estate, they, they lived in for a while, but it was put up for sale, and it was purchased in 1957, Now, a 17,552-square-foot home, eight bedrooms, eight bathrooms. It was put up for sale back in 1957 and was sold for $100,000. Now, an amazing thing about that house. Now, the property and the house itself were actually named after the original owner of the estate, a fellow by the name of Essie Tuff, who was the publisher of the Memphis Daily Appeal, and he named the property or the estate after his daughter, Grace, and thus we get the name of the property, Graceland. Does it sound familiar to you? Not because of the previous owners, but because of the ones that we know within pretty much our lifetime, Elvis Presley. He was the one who bought it in 1957 for $100,000. It became not only Elvis's home, but that's also where Elvis died. And right now it's a memorial for Elvis, and they're looking to make it even into an amusement park all around the area. Well, this morning I want to take us all to Graceland, but not the one in Memphis. I want to take us to the one that was bought and paid for us at the cross of Christ. When Christ made that payment, he made for us the opportunity to be able to literally live 
in grace land. We look at the believers today and in the church today. The unfortunate thing is most of the believers remain in what I call bondage city. When in all the time, our fare to be able to make it to Graceland has already been paid. And yet we're not taking advantage of it. You see, just the verse that we looked last week, for you were bought with a price. And that price that was paid on Calvary for your soul, for your sin, for the very life that you have, was already covered by Christ. And it allows us to be able to live and walk in what I call grace land. As the hymn writer Philip Bliss declared in the mid-1800s, free from the law, O happy condition, Jesus has bled and there is remission, cursed by the law and bruised by the fall, but Christ has redeemed us once for all. What a great situation that is for us. This is all part of that ongoing work of sanctification for us to be able to live and work in that way. It's the process of maturing in Christ. It's the work of seeing the, the victory that's already been gained in our life through Christ. Free from the law. Oh, happy condition, as the hymn writer wrote. But unfortunately for many believers, they're still living in bondage city. Bound by a tremendous amount of things. Some that are simply bound by guilt. Some that are bound by addictions and bondages within their own personal life. Some that are bound by things that that are keeping them from being able to walk and live freely in Christ. And all the while, Christ is desiring to bring us to Graceland. Oh, that we would come and live in Graceland. I want us to live in Graceland. I want to live in Graceland. I don't want to keep going back to Bondage City. I want to live continually in Graceland. I want to begin chapter 7 by actually backing up into chapter 6, verses 22 and 23. And Paul wrote these things, But now, having been set free from sin, and having become slaves to God, you have your fruit to holiness, and the end everlasting life for the wages of sin is what but the gift of god is what eternal life in christ jesus our lord what a blessing is ours that's already been obtained for us it's not a work that we can do even not a work that we have to do but it's not even a work that we can do it's done through christ paul declares that once again, we're, we're, we're free from the law of sin and death. That no longer has that bondage over us. He goes on to explain that new standing for us. And, he, and in chapter 7, he begins to show us how to live in Graceland. Beginning in chapter 7 and carrying on from verses 22 and 23 of chapter 6, we read not only does he say that, hey, you know, you, you've been set free from sin you, and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. 
Here we're looking at that first section, the positional place of you and I in this work of sanctification. And when he says, do you not know, brethren, he's in essence saying like we would say, don't you know, don't you understand? And he's writing to those who would know. They know the scriptures. Many of the believers in Rome were Jewish believers. And so they knew what the scriptures spoke about the law. And when he says about that, that that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives, he's speaking to them about the fact that when we were outside of Christ, before we became believers, our citizenship literally was in bondage city. That's where we lived. That was who we were. We were under the bondage of the law. The fruit of our lives led to sin, that fruit of unholiness. We were attached to the law, and the wages of that sin was death. The fruit was unholiness, but the wages of sin was death. But now, praise the Lord, we've come to that point of faith and to put our trust in Christ, in that completed work of Christ. And we're now under grace, and the the fruit of our lives now has changed. Instead of being unholiness, now the fruit of our lives has changed to holiness. And so Paul continues on, and he tries to help us to understand our current position in Christ as he writes an an illustration in verses 2 and 3. And he says, For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she would be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she is married to another man. Now, you need to understand that Paul is not necessarily giving us a teaching on marriage. He's just using the reality of the marriage and the relationship and the law and the rule of marriage. He's using that as an illustration to, again, speak to us of the freedom that is ours, again, once the law is dead to us. We have this great freedom. When he speaks in verse 2 about the husband dying and then the wife is released from the law, he's using a Greek word, Katargeo, uh, and katargeo means to, to be rendered entirely useless. So when her husband dies, the law that was keeping her bound to her husband, that law is now completely useless. It's, it's null and void. There's nothing there. She is absolutely free. And that's what Paul is saying for you and I when we come to Christ, that the law that kept us bound has now been done away with because now we are in Christ. Now, beloved, you know, and if you've been with us for very long, I, we know that in that freedom, that is not freedom to sin. Paul has already covered that in several instances. Man, does that then free us to sin? He says, certainly not. Absolutely not. He uses the illustration to show us our position to the law, once that passage of back in Romans chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, has taken place in our lives. And that, what he wrote in chapter 6, verse 6 says, Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, and that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. We're no longer bound by the law. Because we've died to the law. We're no longer citizens of bondage city. We should be living in Graceland. I'm not a citizen there anymore. 
I'm a citizen of Graceland. And yet for many believers, though our citizenship is now in grace, we're still living under bondage. In addition to the change of our citizenship or that marriage relationship, not only are we no longer bound to the law because we've become dead to it, but we're now bound to Christ because we've been raised in that newness of life that the Word declares to us and speaks to us. And we're resurrected in Christ, and that's what brings us into that situation of being able to live in Graceland. He continues on in verse 4. He says, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. Our lives now need to be bearing a fruit that gives honor and glory to God. Not that kind of fruit that we looked at last week. He continues on in verse 5. He says, When we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear that fruit to death. And what was that fruit to death? That was that nasty, spoiled, and rancid fruit. That fruit that no way in the world you would give to anyone. The kind of fruit that you would simply throw away. And when we were in the flesh, outside of Christ, that's the only way, the, the only fruit of our lives were given were that rancid, spoiled, rotten fruit. He goes on in verse 6, But now we've been delivered from the law, having died to what we are held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Now, just as we had offspring in our previous marriage, if you continue the illustration, now in our new marriage relationship, we have new offspring. And that new offspring is that which is holiness and righteousness. And again, that fruit of holiness unto God. When the Word declares to us, in, Paul writes again in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, he says, walk in the Spirit, that we would not obey the desires or the lusts of the flesh. The only way that even in this new relationship that the fruit of our lives is going to bear the offspring of holiness is when you and I are walking in the Spirit of God. Not in the flesh, not in trying to do and work in our flesh the works of God, but as we work and move and walk in the Spirit, God leads us into these fruits of righteousness. And that gets us to the second portion of our scripture, that personal aspect. How does it affect me personally? Paul comes to really the the other duh question. And remember in, in chapter 6 we looked at several of these duh questions. It's kind of like what, that's a stupid question that you're asking. And here he brings it again. He kind of he brings it to us with the idea that you know it's a negative answer. You know that he's working toward the, the negative understanding. But I believe that he's using it to kind of jar our attention. He says what shall we say then? Is, is the law sin? Well, certainly not, he says. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. And suddenly it was there, it was made clear. Oh, that's what I'm doing in my life. He speaks about the fact that the law was necessary because with the law came the true knowledge of what sin is. The law was that spotlight that came on his life that showed all the imperfections. 
If we're continually in darkness, we don't see the imperfections. Another illustration you might use is that the law was like an x-ray. The x-ray was revealing what was there. The x-ray didn't make the problem. The x-ray reveals what's already there. And that's why God gave his law. As the law came and said, this is my law. This is my commandments. And man looked at that and said, there's, there's no way I can keep all of those. And God says, but this is my standard. This is my holy standard before you. And man failed continually. All you need to do is look in Acts chapter 15 and you see when the Gentiles became believers and they tried to make them become Jews in order to become fulfilled Christians. And the apostle says, look, we can't even keep the law. How in the world do we expect them to keep it also? No, the law was there to reveal our great need for a Savior. The law was there to reveal the reality of sin in our life and the desperateness of our life that we need someone, some way to pay the price that needs to be paid. Not only that, but the law worked against my very sinful nature. Sin, he says in verse 8, sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire for apart from the law Sin was dead. And as much as we would like, a mirror cannot produce a change in our physical structure. We might wish and hope that it could. And it's kind of an interesting thing. I read it a couple of years ago. That when a woman looks in a mirror, now understand this, ladies and, and men, you need to understand it. When a woman looks in a mirror, she sees herself worse than she really is. When a man looks in a mirror, he sees himself much better than he actually is. But the mirror can't change a thing. In reality, a mirror reflects the reality of who we are. I can't look at the mirror and say, change me, because I, I want to be a lion rather than just a, a kitten. Uh, the mirror is not going to do a thing for me. The mirror reflects who I really am. The law was the same way. It reflected. We saw it. And by keeping the law, it was no, it was not changing the heart of man. People were keeping it on the outside, but on the inside there was no change that was going on. As a matter of fact, the law came to the sinful nature and it revealed even, even a worse extent of who we are. Paul, in essence, tells us that when the law says, don't touch, suddenly there, there arose in him this great desire to touch, and to, to come and find, well, why can't I touch that? And if you don't believe that that's true, then you haven't been around any three or four or five-year-old children because you come to them and you say, don't touch that. And they'll come and, They'll wander all around it. And they'll look at it. They'll observe it. And the minute you go out of the room, they'll touch it. Why? Because you said that, don't touch it. There was an interesting study, and perhaps some of you have seen it on the Internet, about children with marshmallows. I, I loved it. You, you get these uh, uh, probably five, six-year-old children, and you put them in a room by themselves. There's a table in front of them, and you put a marshmallow in front of them. You say, now, don't eat this marshmallow. I'm going to be gone for a little while, 
And when I come back, if you haven't eaten that marshmallow, I'll give you another marshmallow, and then you can have both marshmallows. But while I'm gone, don't eat that marshmallow. And it's interesting as you watch the video. Some of the children will watch the adult, and as soon as they leave the room, the door is closed, they take the marshmallow and eat the whole thing. Some of them take and look at that marshmallow. They'll look at it on the table, and they'll look all around it. They might even pick it up and smell it and then put it back down, pick it back up and look all over it again, smell it again, put it back down. Some of them might come up, they would come and take and nibble just a little bit of it and then turn it around so that the adult wouldn't be able to see where they ate. And then one, I love, I believe it was a little girl, that as soon as the adult left, she took the marshmallow and put it way over on the edge of the table, got it out of her sight. It's how you and I ought to be with sin. But instead, too many times, we're sniffing it. We're just a little taste, just a little taste. You see, when the Word says don't touch, we're almost driven to touch. When the Word says don't walk on the grass, we want to, ooh, that must be nice grass. Let's try it out. When the Word says wet paint, how many go up and say, oh, is it still wet? (laughs) Oh, yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Paul says in verse 9, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. And for sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Paul thought that he was alive, as any good Pharisee would have. He felt he could keep the law in the flesh and Comparing himself with others, he was doing an excellent job. As a matter of fact, he says, among my peers, man, I was, I was well advanced among my peers. And yet the law continued to reveal to him that he was a greater sinner than he thought was possible. And it was when he became born again that really he wrote those words, even in his later life. He says, man, I am the chief of all sinners. Because the closer he got to God, the more he realized the depravity of his own sinful nature. Beloved, for you and I, that needs to be the understanding. We need to understand the foolishness of our lives outside of Christ, but even still, the foolishness of our lives in Christ and walking in disobedience and not walking in love and in great passion toward him. Paul says in verse 12, he says, Therefore, the law is holy. So the law isn't sin and the law isn't bad. No, the law is holy. The law is, and the commandment is holy and just and good. And the purpose of the law was to lead us to Christ. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24 and 25, he says, Therefore, the law was our tutor, our pedagogue, our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we're no longer under that tutor, under that schoolmaster, under the law. The pedagogue, it's a, it's a Greek word, speaking of a, a slave that was put in charge of the young men of the upper class families. These pedagogues would come into the family and take the young children at six years old through about 16 years old. They would be with them throughout the day. They would take them to school. They would be with them at home. And into their lives, they would pour in character 
and manners as well as education. They were the schoolmasters. They were the teachers for them. They were the tutors until they finally came to that age that they did not need it. And Paul, again, as he's writing there in Galatians, he says, the law was like that for us. The law was our schoolmaster, our tutor. But what it was doing, it was bringing us to the point of Christ. And now that we've come to Christ, the law no longer has an effect in our life because we don't live by the letter of the law. We live by a passion and by a devotion to God and of just desiring to please Him. The third point in practical application. How does it really apply in my life? And again, we come to another duh question in verse 13. He says, Has then what is good become death to me? No, certainly not. We hope that today's edition of The Open Word has been a blessing to you. If you live in the Casa Grande, Arizona area, we want to invite you to join us for worship. The messages that you hear on The Open Word are produced from worship services at Calvary Chapel, Casa Grande. Maybe the teaching you heard is exactly what you're looking for in a church. Then please join us. We have services on Saturday evenings and two Sunday morning worship services, as well as other services throughout the week. For more information about service times, including driving directions, log on to TheOpenWord.com and then follow the link to the church website. Now, we want to be sure to tell you how you can get a free copy of this teaching. Simply log on to TheOpenWord.com. Our website has today's message available for you to download. For more information about The Open Word or Calvary Chapel Casa Grande, again, we encourage you to log on to TheOpenWord.com. Although The Open Word teachings are always available to you free of charge, if you'd like to help support this ministry, simply log on to our homepage at TheOpenWord.com and click on the support link to make a secure donation to this teaching ministry. Your donation can be set up as a one-time or regularly scheduled tax-deductible gift to this ministry. From all of us here with the production team, we want to say thank you for tuning in and may God richly bless you.